This podcast was funded by and developed in collaboration with AstraZeneca. Hi, this is Vic Nitti, Chair of the AUA Office of Education, welcoming you to another AUA Office of Education podcast, this one on genomic testing and prostate cancer. I am happy to introduce my co-host, Dr. Stephen Friedland, who is a urologist at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center, where he holds the Warshaw, Robertson, and Law Families Chair in Prostate Cancer. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Great. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. I'd like to go over a few learning objectives before we start. We have five of them for this podcast, and they are first to identify the role of genomic testing in men with different stages of prostate cancer. Second, to recognize the need for collaboration with genetic counsel, counselors for optimal evaluation tailored to an individual prostate cancer patient. Third, to explain the criteria for genomic testing of prostate cancer patients across the disease spectrum, current NCCN testing guidelines, differences between germline and somatic testing, different testing modalities currently available in gene panels, and options for testing these men, including appropriate timing for testing. Fourth will be to interpret the results of genomic testing, the implications for shared decision-making with patients based on test results, and the impact of novel therapies and personalized treatment for prostate cancer care, and finally, to apply best practices and lessons learned for operationalizing testing and testing workflows in urology patients. So first, I'd like to start out with just a discussion on what is genomic testing. Steve, we're hearing a lot about genomic testing. What exactly is it? Well, it's a great question, and I think there is some confusion. It seems like a basic question, but genomic testing looks for small differences in DNA that can actually affect the risk of not only getting cancer, but how aggressive the cancer is, and ultimately how we should treat the cancer. And I want to differentiate this from other genetic testing that we are doing more frequently in prostate cancer, and those are based upon DNA. And that's your your post-biopsy. Is this guy a candidate for active surveillance? Do I need to treat him? How aggressive? That's your decipher, your Polaris, your Oncotype. Those look at differences in RNA and in, in which genes are active. So that's actually different than the genomic testing where we're really looking for differences specifically in DNA repair. It's how DNA repairs itself. DNA gets damaged all the time. Uh, just breathing air and oxygen can damage DNA, radiation, different uh, things. And so we have over evolution, millions and millions and and billions of years evolved ways to preserve our DNA. But unfortunately, some people carry these defects in the genes that don't repair their DNA well. And there's several different ways DNA can repair. The one that seems to be most relevant in terms of of prostate cancer is what we call homologous recombination repair, also known as HRR and then we talk about mutations in those pathways. And that's your BRCA, BRCA1, BRCA2. And so what happens is if you have mutations in those genes that don't function well, and your DNA does get damaged, 
it can't repair itself well. And that leads to ultimately altered genes, different genes, genes you know, that have blunt ends, chromosomes that start to rearrange and all kinds of crazy things can happen. New genes get turned on and in time that can actually lead to cancer. So that's why it's very relevant. And sometimes people carry these genes in every cell in their body, we call it germline inherited from your parents. Sometimes they actually newly form in the tumor and it's only in the tumor cells and those we would call somatic. And that actually becomes important when we start to think about testing down the road. So that was an excellent overview. Can you now help us to understand why it's important for some people to undergo genomic testing and perhaps who those people are? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so really the, there's three main reasons we want to think about doing genomic testing. And I'll talk in a second about who those people are that we want to think about it. So really the reasons we do it, as I said, often it's genes that are carried in every cell in your body. They're inherited from your family, which means your aunts, your uncles, your children um, of those patients could also carry those abnormal genes and put them at risk. So for the family implications of it. The second is it tells us how likely you are to get prostate cancer. And as these genes have also been implicated in many other cancers. Um, but in terms of prostate, it tells us the likelihood you'll get the cancer. But once you get it, it also tells us how aggressive the cancer is. And finally, the third reason to do it is because if you have a mutation in these genes, as your tumor starts to progress, there are specific therapies, which we're going to get into, uh, namely PARP inhibitors, of which there are two FDA-approved as well as platinum chemotherapy, though it's not been well studied, there are some data to suggest it has benefits, and certainly clinical trials that are specific for these patients. So it has a lot of implications and really something importantly we should be doing. All right, now, as, as I said before, who, who really should be tested? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's an evolving answer. Um, if we look at the NCCN, National Conference of Cancer Network Guidelines, NCCN, that a lot of us follow, basically it breaks it down to people that should actually have the tumor tested as well as germline. Because if you're just testing germline, you're probably missing about half the mutations that occur just in the tumor and somatic. So if you have a regional disease or metastatic disease. So as a very advanced cancer, you should have both the tumor and the germline tested. And we'll get into a little bit of the nuances of which do you do first and how you do it in a second. But there are other groups where we're more worried about germline. We're more worried there's something about you that put you at higher risk and that may have implications for your family. And that's certainly if you have a family history of prostate cancer, not, you know, your, your great uncle when he was 80 years old had a little bit of pelvic PSA and got a biopsy, you know, there's multiple relatives, younger age, um, Ashkenazi Jews are at higher risk. And for those uh, who don't know, Ashkenazi Jew is your typical European um, Jew, Russian, Polish kind of ancestry, they're at higher risk. And then if you have um, some differences in morphology that can be seen on the biopsy, 
particularly in what we call an intraductal or cribiform. Those are kind of newer described pathologies that tend to be more aggressive. Those are more likely to have mutations and should have germline testing. So what is the actual process for doing germline versus somatic testing? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. That gets into the meat of, okay, we're, we're educated, we're excited. How do we actually do this? And so one way of doing it is that you can test the tissue, the tumor tissue. Then that can either be the biopsy that was done if it's a newly diagnosed patient, or even if they're now with metastatic CRPC and you're testing now, you know, you can go back five, 10 years or more sometimes in these primary tissues and you'll still pick it up. We don't, we think using the original tissue is still gonna give you pretty informative information about the status of the tumor today. So any tissue available should be kind of your first go-to type thing. And again, that will tell you what's going on in the tumor. Now, if you see something in the tumor, you don't know if it newly arose in the tumor or is in every cell in the body. So that's something we would do the tumor tissue and then we would say it's reflex testing. If we see something, then we do the germline testing, i.e. is it just in the tumor or is it every cell, is it inheritable? Um, sometimes the tissue isn't always available and that, that's a challenge or we send the tissue to the lab and they're not able to process it. It's too little, it was a biopsy, it's too old. And so in that case, you can either get a new tissue sample um, the prostates we know go into the bone. It's not so easy to biopsy the bone and there can be some challenges. So there are newer tests that you can actually do that are blood tests. And so that requires that the tumor shed some DNA into the blood and we can then measure the, the DNA in the um, blood, but you can actually measure tumor DNA. Um, again, it doesn't work all the time. So that's why we, we kind of say go with tissue first if you can. Um, if you're looking at just germline, then uh, that would be blood. You could look at the white blood cells. You can even do a saliva test, um, you know, and that's gonna give you information. So getting germline is pretty easy. Getting the tumor, uh, which for those really high risk patients, regional metastatic, we need to do that. Um, again, tissue first, if not, then blood sample or getting a new biopsy. I'm guessing that the process to determine sort of tumor DNA in the blood and the process of germline testing in the blood is somehow different? Yeah, I mean, so if you're looking at germline, they're gonna isolate the white blood cells. And so it's a very rich source of DNA. And they're gonna be um, in every single cell in the body. So you can, you do that, you know that's germline. If you're looking for the tumor DNA, you're looking for the free DNA that's floating around in the blood that you don't know if that was shed from normal cells or tumor cells. So the, you, they can, in a laboratory, separate out um, what is shed DNA. Again, you don't know if it's normal or tumor, but it's, it's there versus what you know definitively be germline, which would be your white blood cells. So now what do we do with the information from genomic testing? Yeah, I mean, that's the end of the day. We're all taught don't do a test unless it's gonna change what you do, right? So what do we do with this information? And it really, again, goes into the three reasons we did testing in the first place. The family reasons help understand the prognosis 
and then the therapeutic side. So in terms of family counseling, if a patient, you know, some people like to do a little bit of counseling, you can actually do counseling beforehand. Most urologists are not experts on this. I'm certainly not an expert, but can talk to them. Look, it may have some implications. Let's do this test. If it comes back positive, we almost any company now that is doing these tests has genetic counselors available on staff and will provide counseling to that patient because you know he you may need to explain to him again the counselor that his daughter is at increased risk of breast cancer and when should they start mammography and different things things that you know most urologists aren't knowledgeable about so that's an important part though you you know sometimes you can save a whole family not just your patient and then understanding again is it more aggressive disease so we we think about some clinical questions that i don't have an answer for so if you have a patient who is an otherwise active surveillance candidate and has one of these mutations that I know makes a more aggressive tumor, is he, should he actually get treatment even though he's otherwise an active surveillance candidate? A question I don't know the answer to, but things that were being discussed in the field. So certainly you wanna keep that in mind. And the third would certainly be the therapeutic. Again, there are PARP inhibitors, there are FDA approved, Platinum-based chemotherapy, not well-studied, but we certainly know from other cancers, quite effective, and then certainly uh, clinical trials. And I think, you know, there's a lot of excitement, particularly in the PARP inhibitors. They're now FDA-approved, and what they actually do is they actually, um, it, it's an interesting way in terms of the biology of how they work, is that they actually, to a certain degree, prevent cells from repairing DNA. And you think your defect is in repairing DNA, how does adding a drug that further repairs that, how how does that help? And actually what happens is the PARP inhibitors prevent you from repairing small DNA defects such that they become big defects. And then your genetic, uh, these genes that you have altered for these patients prevent them from repairing the big defects such that you actually get so many defects that the cell will actually die. Cells can't survive if there's complete chaos going in there. They're, you know, they can deal with some damage, but they can't complete with, you know, survive with complete chaos. So that's the concept of a PARP inhibitor, is if you can repair your DNA, you create a little bit of damage with a PARP inhibitor, your cell repairs it, PARP inhibitors aren't gonna do anything. But if you can't repair that damage that it's causing, it's actually gonna create cell death and we actually know that those drugs in clinical trials have significant benefits. So, you know, we, we talked about the role of the genetic counselor and it's, it's been my understanding that we don't have uh, in, in the United States enough of genetic counselors. Uh, it is a, uh, uh, I guess an area of need, especially now as we get into personalized medicine and I guess you could say personalized family medicine uh, based on, on genomic testing, uh, et cetera. Um, what do you say to the urologist who wants to do this, but just doesn't have, is not comfortable with the availability of genetic counselors where she or he is practicing? Yeah, you know, it's a real issue. I mean, there definitely is a shortage and that's where the companies that are doing these genetic tests have genetic counselors on staff. So uh, I'm certainly not here to recommend any one company over another, but 
you know, work with a company, identify a company that's going to make it easy for you to order the test and is willing to provide that downstream service. Because I agree, urologists should not be put in the position of requiring them to do genetic counseling. Um, we should be able to order the test. It's a right thing for the patients. And you need an infrastructure in place to support when the patient has an abnormal test. And that's what these companies are able to provide, many of them. Now, when you talk about, I guess the, the urologist would have more of a counseling role when we start to talk about treatments based on genomic characteristics, correct? Correct. And that's where, you know, I don't anticipate that's going to be every urologist. I think it's going to be those who really specialize in prostate cancer, particularly advanced prostate cancer, or alternatively, that's referred to a urologist who does it or referred to a medical oncologist. But if you don't even know to think about it and do the testing, you're essentially denying your patient that opportunity to benefit from those therapies, even if you're not the one to give the therapies at least order the test or refer them to someone else who is comfortable ordering those tests. So Steve, if we could sort of summarize for our audience, a, you have a patient who has prostate cancer. Who, what's gonna, what's gonna be the driving force for genomic testing? So I think in the past, we, had little to do with the information. You could do genetic counseling, but as we talked about, urologists are, are not fully comfortable with that, and I understand that. It's prognostic. It tells me the cancer is worse, but often the PSA, the grade, other genetic tests I can do uh, can give me that information. So there wasn't anything I could do about it. So there, there was this impetus of why test if I can't do anything about it. I think we actually now have therapies. We have FDA approved therapies that are actually specific to the men with these particular DNA alterations. So, you know, particularly as you get into the advanced stage disease and they're failing first, second line, if you don't do the test, they're not gonna get these therapies. So I think that's the momentum is at the end of the day, you're trying to help your patient and ensure that they can get all the options available to them. How about, is there a role, for example, in a patient who has what you deem as clinically significant localized prostate cancer for which you are recommending treatment? So not the active surveillance patient and not the advanced or metastatic patient, but somebody with um, localized clinically significant prostate cancer. So at that point, I would say the prognostic factor is not as crucial. They have bad disease. They're going to get treatment. We will see what happens to them. Uh, there's not therapeutic options at this point outside of clinical trials. We actually, there are clinical trials of PARP inhibitors with radiation therapy in the upfront setting, for example. So there are being looked at, but I think you have the genetic counseling and the, the family piece. If they have bad disease, regional disease, um, you know, that's someone that is more likely to have one of these mutations and it may be in their children and you may, it may not impact your patient, but you may end up saving their son's life because they're aware of it. They got tested, they get early screening and get treatment 
And so you can make a difference uh, with the genetic counseling. So I think that is the rationale to do it, even in, in that patient. And is that a discussion that you have with the patient to say, you know, I, I, I think your prostate cancer needs to be treated. I think the best treatments are X, Y, and Z. Um, we could do this testing to determine, you know, relative risks for, uh, for other cancers in family members. Is this something you want to do? Is that how you would approach it in, in that particular patient? Absolutely. I mean, I, I literally was yesterday in clinic, saw a patient with, you know, multiple cores, Gleason 8, 4 plus 3, high volume, one side of his prostate was all chock full of cancer. A 66-year-old guy, and he's there with his son, who's 35, and we talk about him and what the patient should do. The wife is there, and, you know, then the son asks, well, when should I get tested? You know, and I said, well, if we got these genetic tests that we can do on your dad, and if he has the mutations, then, you know, it's possible you could carry him. We could actually test you directly as well. And if you have these mutations, we should start pretty darn early. If you don't have the mutations, you know, you still have a family history either way. So maybe we screen a little bit earlier, but it can make a difference. And, and do we screen that 35-year-old now, wait till he's 40, wait till he's 55 per guidelines? I mean, this is the, the, the frontier that we're still trying to figure out what the right answer is. And are you using genomic testing regularly in your active surveillance patients? I am not uh, genomic testing. I am not doing an active surveillance pa patients um, unless they have the strong family history, Ashkenazi Jew, um, unusual uh, um, pathology, but usually those aren't our active surveillance cameras. You know, your typical three plus three doing well. I did. I generally am not doing genomic testing for those patients. All right. So less of a role in those patients, a role particularly for genetic counseling in the localized, uh, clinically significant prostate cancer patient, and then um, perhaps in a in much more of a therapeutic way in patients with advanced prostate cancer. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think that's a good summary. Great. Steve, as we finish up here, any, any sort of final messages that you want to leave our audience with? I think, you know, genomic testing, I think, is here to stay. It's not going away. It's only to get more important. I think as we get newer therapies that are biomarker-directed, this concept of testing the patient, the tumor, the blood, to figure out the right therapy is only going to increase. It's, it feels scary, but my recommendation would be find a company you like with a rep that can work with you, walk you through how to fill out the forms, make it easier for you, provide the genetic counseling if you find abnormalities, and, and make it easy for yourself. It's not going away, and it is important to be doing. Steve, I have one last question for you. How different uh, will this podcast be? five years from now? It's, it's a great question. I, I think we will be doing a, a lot more of it. I think the therapies now, as we've seen with chemotherapy, novel hormonal therapy agents that started in metastatic castrate resistant disease in very late stage are now being used for metastatic hormone sensitive. They're being tested in the localized or biochemical recurrent patients 
PARP inhibitors are following the same pathway. So it wouldn't surprise me if in five years we are using them earlier, much, much earlier. And so that way, you know, this testing becomes only that much more important. But I think we'll also have more than just homologous recombination repair pathway tests out there. Well, that's great, Steve. I think that was an excellent uh, introduction to and comprehensive summary of genomic testing in prostate cancer uh, today. And uh, thank you so much for that. It was insightful and I think uh, really very practical. Um, so again, I thank you. I would also like to thank our audience. Um, as always, uh, if you would like more information, please visit us at auanet.org slash university. Thank you. <laughs>